Joel, we have a really interesting show for everyone this week. Uh, GE has hit a little bit of roadblock in its renewable business. Uh, we'll talk about the details there of, of what's next for GE Renewables and GE Vernova. Big losses in the third quarter. How are they going to recover from that? And then we'll talk about ACP offshore. That happened in Providence, Rhode Island, where we had 2,000 people show up and discuss the future of offshore of the United States and what some of the roadblocks are and what, what the OEMs and operators' uh, concerns are. And then we'll have a special guest, Matthew Stead, CEO and co-founder of Ping, talks us about the growth of their continuous monitoring system. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. Rosemary is on a well-deserved break, and this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. GE had an announcement this week. They released a third quarter results and GE as a whole is doing decently fine. Uh, the aircraft division is looking like it's stabilizing and, and picking up some numbers because the airlines are flying again. Mm-hmm. Healthcare seems to be doing okay, but the power and renewable business is really in trouble. Uh, the, the renewable part, so power and renewables were actually broken out separately, which is going to be enveloped by Vernova. So if you take Vernova, take power, non-renewables and renewables and look at them separately, their renewable energy part lost about uh, $900 million in the quarter. And it's based on about 40% plummet in sales, uh, sale and orders, sorry, 40% plummet in orders and about 15% drop in sales. And GE's talking about restructuring that business to save money. And and as we've heard, the onshore Mm -hmm. business, wind business for GE, they're talking about 20% layoffs. It sounds like those are in process at the moment. And they're trying to save about $500 million annually. But the the numbers are really depressing. If if you look at uh, what renewables is going to lose this year, it's around $2 billion. At least that's the way GE's projecting it. So every other part of the GE business is profitable. Depends on how much, you know, it's relative, right? They're all not mm-hmm. doing whiz bank, but they're profitable except for renewables. And it looks like some of the bigger pain points are inflation, supply chain, warranty claims. It looks like that's a, another big issue. Uh, and just overall lower demand because of the production tax credit expiring and now being picked up again finally. Boy, Joel, it does not look good for GE right now. Those kind of losses are really hard to sustain for much longer, you'd think. You know, before we uh, started recording here today, we were talking offline. I'm looking at this chart. Um, and anybody that is, uh, knows, you don't have to know anything about uh, economics or accounting or anything to look at this chart and understand there's some problems, right? Uh, it's just every other every other portion of GE's business up, up, up. And steady, yeah. steady negative income or operating revenue, and then all of a sudden just drop this quarter. So, um, you know, there's a lot of that we've been talking about a lot of things in renewables and these majors, um, laying off a lot of people. Siemens laid off a bunch of people. GE has laid off a bunch of people. It's yeah. it's it's very depressing to to cruise through my LinkedIn um, feed lately and see all these really really bright people from GE searching for jobs. Um, so while 
bad for them to have to go through that transition. It's going to be a bonus to a lot of these other companies picking up some really good talent. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, so, and I've seen a lot of people, really cool things about people vouching for other people as well. Like, hey, I'm looking for a job and someone else jumping on it going, hey, I worked with this person. They're awesome. Someone's going to get a real, you know, a real good person there. So it's nice to see the the renewable industry coming together when one of these um, big companies is taking a drop. But, uh, yeah, I mean, $2 billion uh, in the in the red, you can't survive that for a whole whole long time right uh and, and joining up with the ge the like the powers side of things to become ge vernova when they do that will alleviate some of these pains but man when they say rising waters floats all ships a drought also sinks all ships yeah so. that's what's happening uh, it if they can ma- manage it right now power renewables is are leaning on the aircraft division the engine division uh, mm-hmm. to keep GE moving in a forward direction. But as soon as they, these split up into three separate areas where Vernova is by itself, where do you go for cash flow to sustain those kind of losses? You really can't, you can't rely on the bigger GE to do that unless there's some sort of accommodations made when they decide to finally break into three, how are they going to do that financially? That, that becomes a really big marker of time when that split actually happens and they all go independent of one another. And GE is divesting, by the way, GE is divesting of all sort of corporate assets. Uh, they got rid of Crotonville, which was a big training center or planning to. So there is, won't be anything left of GE proper. It'll be three divisions for sure. I, I, I don't, I don't know how you sustain it. I don't know so, where in today's market you get loans to, to, to sustain yourself yeah. for another six months. Yeah, we were talking about you know is it a, is it a too big to fail type thing where you know like G or you know the Ford got the bailouts and stuff and yes. I I don't know I mean you want to think that the you know like the U.S. government could help a little bit but being that they're going to move to France the headquarters that may play into that some decision of that sort um, so you know Alan let's let's think about or I'm looking at another chart here and why they're having expected losses uh, they say largely due to incremental warranty pressure inflation and lower demand. So inflation is an easy one to see. We all feel that, right? right? You feel that at the gas pump, you feel it at the grocery store. The, it, it's, the other day I went to get milk and it was like $6 a gallon. So yeah. when, did, when did this happen? Eggs, like this is, right. Yeah, eggs, like simple stuff, right? So we're all feeling inflation. We can understand that one. That's number two here. Lower demand. Um, lower demand, you know, I want to think that that's going to come back around just simply how because- far out? Is that two, yeah, and that's that's the out? problem. That's right. the problem, and I, I'm thinking it's coming back around for IRA reasons. So I had yes. a conversation with with a friend of mine in the uh, development space. They are a uh, uh, surveyor, planner, mapper, for, and they do utility lines and installations, all this stuff. But they do it on a state countrywide basis. They're a big big group, and he this this gentleman mentioned to me, hey, ten different people coming in with large developments in the last two months since IRA bill. So to me, I'm like, yes, that's awesome. Now that's 10, you know, just groundbreaking, looking at permits, looking at survey, looking at this stuff. So that doesn't turn into a wind turbine order or a solar panel order for a long time. Um, and, and then, you know, you have to fight, you know, GE right now is in the middle of that offshore fight. So there's a little bit of, you know, um, you might lean more towards a Vestas or a Siemens Gamesa when you're installing these things. 
Um, so there's there's also that pressure within the market. Uh, so that's the lower demand side of things. And then the third one here, incremental warranty pressure. Now, we've talked about this before as well. I mean, we sit in that space where we we are fighting with warranties and or helping asset owners fighting with warranties, fighting with root cause analysis for manufacturing defects, all these different things. So I think that some of the last 10, 15 years of this booming incremental growth and short innovation cycles with blades and some things like that are starting to rear their head with these guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Alan, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I definitely think so. It seems like all the OEMs are concerned about the rapid in, in Increase in the number of blades, the types of blades, the types of turbines, the race to you know twenty megawatts, which is where we're all headed, is putting a huge strain financially on all the OEMs, and it, all it takes is a little bit of a hiccup to to really put a company under financial strain, and GE has hit that hiccup, and for whatever reason, uh, there is not a lot to do about it. I mean, just because of the timing, right? So you, you can you can look at the different reasons why they've reached these financial impact numbers. But the, the problem is with the inflationary pressure that's going to exist, that's looking like it's another year, maybe two, is the discussion in the, in the economic communities that it gets really hard to finance things. And it's getting really hard on the supply chain. The supply chain costs are not going to go down. So you, you got that, you got the the pressure from the bottom on your suppliers coming up, giving you less and less margins. And then, like we're going to see in this California offshore auction, uh, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of money set aside. So the 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 OEMs don't have a lot of room to operate in. That doesn't make for a very attractive business. And no. if GE Vernova becomes a you know a listed stock, which it will. What happens there? And the, the stock markets are going to look at what six-month future is, and they're going to see huge losses, I, I would assume, well, at least at least in the near term. But yeah, I mean, you, what, you know, what's the U.S. going to do about it? I think that's I think what you and I yeah. are trying to get to is like, what is, what is the U.S. government, state agencies, whatever, going to do about it? Because if you, if you do lose GE or GE really ramps down, which it may do, you don't have a domestic supplier. Yeah, and, and with the contraction of the economy in general, and inflation running away with really, I mean, from from my research, not a whole lot of end in sight. It's hard to get capital right now, right? And yeah, it and is. and understanding that every single development that GE is going to be a part of that is going to, I mean, the pro, the the product of GE renewables is the turbines. Right or the, and the right. service side of things and the service side of things probably does just fine, but the turbines is where the the money is and where the money is being made and lost. Right. If you don't have capital readily available within your economy, uh, all of those projects are super capital intensive. Like nobody's gonna nobody yes. has half a half a billion dollars in their you know in a can out back. That's like I'm gonna go build a wind farm. You got to go and finance that thing. Right. And when and the finance rates are so high, you're gonna hold off. Everybody's kind of holding their horses a little bit, going like, what is this economy gonna do? Uh, when it gets back on track, maybe we'll pull the trigger, but right now, not so much. So that's a cascading effect all the way back to that GE's wind platforms that just aren't being sold. Well, does this lend itself, and I've been saying this for the last year, that a developer grabs hold of an OEM? Maybe not in whole, but at least in part, 
to provide the financial stability. So say some a company like Orsted, even though it's not truly an independent company, it's owned by Denmark, right? Isn't that the, the basis of that? Uh, yeah. If Orsted decided to grab hold of an OEM, basically to lower their costs, that would take pressure off. Uh, and, and But if you combine the two together, an operator, owner-operator with a manufacturer, that does seem like the best combination. It's sort of what, well, it's sort of what China does in, in a top-level sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, if you're if you're looking at it being a, a an American uh, need to create wind turbines, particularly in the states, I don't know how you're going to do it without someone, a Berkshire Hathaway, an Orsted, somebody's a big player. Brookfield, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Coming Some in and saying, capital. "Hey." We're gonna we're gonna buy a quarter of GE Vernova, and we're gonna we're gonna lower our costs. We can buy turbines at cost, and yet we can provide a constant revenue stream for this OEM that's making these turbines, thereby keeping a stable supply chain. I think right now the play in that, if you were to look at it, would be someone that's going to do floating offshore. Yeah. Because yeah. that's that's yeah. the only gap, right? That's the only one that's not quite figured out, right? Because I don't I don't know of a whole lot of operators, maybe besides Orsted or uh, an EDF or a Nextera that would have yeah, that Nextera. kind of capital. Nextera would have that capital. Well, it, they would. You think that they would? But why? Why would yeah. Why would GE have go into that marketplace, right? It, with all the downside risks they have right now on onshore and the limited offshore that they're in. Why would you invest money in floating offshore right now? I, I think if you are lead, heading that company, that'd be the last thing you want to do is make well, such a huge bet. It would have to be an, a, an someone massively cash rich, an Econor uh, to oh, to, sure. gra- to to grab someone to say, we are now going to develop up for floating with you. And now we are Econor and whoever it is, SGRE, asbestos, whatever. And we're going to take on offshore floating. We're going to be the ones. Um, I agree. But I mean, I, I think it has to go there. It could. I mean, it's so far. It's it's it seems economically far fetched just because of the, the amount of capital involved and something like that would be wild. Um, well, I'm just kn- thinking. Who, I'm, what's the book value of a GE Vernova though in in a year? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, might a, it might be a steal. Right, yeah, they may not I'm have not. any choice. Right, you, you could get a, a hostile takeover of a of a GE Vernova, just because of the the difficulty in which it is in right now. It's which we have seen in the United States all the time. You know, very what we you know historically great companies have a, a, a weak year and they get taken over because they know there's intrinsic value in this asset. It's just low at the moment, and so these crazy takeover things happen in these. Uh, oddly inflationary times it's a possibility and i hope man i hope it doesn't happen man i i hope ge can figure this thing out i really really do but it's not looking good right now and you you just hope that you know the leaders that they have in place can steer this ship through these difficult waters because uh, it it it's not going to get easier over the next six months i'm thinking about the last big kind of merger not it wasn't a hostile merger but like merger takeover and how it worked out and what comes to mind is mhi vestas right and it and it didn't work out right they sure. tried it they tried yeah. it and they and it just they ended up going like yeah nope 
right. and splitting back <laughs> up. So, you know, in my mind, and this is, you know, of course, this is not, this is just a, a armchair thought from some dummy in the wind industry. Uh, I'm thinking GE Vernova based in France in a bunch of power generation. They start to look pretty poor in six months to a year. EDF is down the street and they're big into the power generation on right. nuclear and right. renewables, everything. Right. So. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of action, right? And I, I just keep an eye on these economic numbers. And when we see these quarterly reports come out, it's good to do a little bit of a deep dive into them to quasi predict the future. Uh, a little bit, a little bit of turbulence ahead. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. So, Joel, you know, we talked about the number of conferences that happened simultaneously in the U.S. and Europe. And another one happened, which was ACP Offshore Wind Power that was in Providence, Rhode Island. And that's an interesting one because that's where most of the offshore development is going to happen. It's right off the shores of Providence. And they had a number of high-level executives from uh, the operators and OEMs. And some of the things they were talking about, I think, are indicative of what the industry is feeling. Now, in particular, Molly Morris, who is the U.S. offshore wind chief for Equinor. Um, I, I'll, I'll quote her because I, I don't want to get us out of perspective here. It says, I believe you would paint an image if there were if there continues to be vital delays and initiatives which might be already within the pipeline getting pushed again, meaning pushed to the right schedule-wise, then it's going to be harder to fulfill that 30 by 30 target. So what she's saying is there's been too many delays up to this point, and we're now getting real close to 2030 because it takes a certain amount of time to develop these projects. If we don't get going, we're going to miss our target. Uh, obtaining permits was a, a fear of a lot of the owner-operators uh, and who mentioned the environmental reviews need to be speedier and carried out with a little more consistency and transparency. Remember that a large um, operator developer like Equinor sees a lot of permitting within their company across the world. So they have uh, a lot of knowledge in the UK and now they're getting experience in the United States. And I'm sure they can, can cross compare and see how fast things are developed in certain countries and not in others. And they see there's there's headwinds in the United States in terms of this project is moving faster, is getting permitted faster than this other project. They don't know why. There's no consistency. That's a that's a big issue mm -hmm. because of the number mm -hmm. of projects we're going to develop uh, that needs to get straightened out pretty quickly. And then uh, from Siemens Gamesa, one of their representatives was talking and said, they're in an industry that's taking off like a rocket ship. Yet uh, there's a lot of of, of us OEMs across the entire value chain or suppliers across the value chain that are struggling to do it at a profit that allows us to continue investing in technology. So Siemens Gamesa is making the same argument everybody's making that uh, the, the potential growth of the industry is very high and yet the profitability of these companies is struggling. So it sounds like a, a lot of the discussions at ACP Offshore Wind Power were very similar to some of the things we heard over in Hamburg, that the industry in general is struggling with governmental agencies 
on some level, even in the even in the in the bid process, the auctions that are happening, I think they feel like they're the auctions are drawing too much value out of the the food chain there, where the mm-hmm. the OEMs and operators can't work effectively. Does does do these comments seem out of line with things that you're hearing, or or pretty much are you hearing the same sort of things? Same stuff, um, and it's onshore as well. Um, you know, grid interconnects and getting getting those people to jump on board, and uh, environmental permitting, and a Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, all these yeah. different things. Like we talked about with that uh, facility going on up, and I think it was Massachusetts where they had seven. We counted like seven agencies where they had to get permits from just to extend this thing five hundred meters so they could mm-hmm. land a vessel there. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the roles of ACP within wind here, American Clean Power Association, um, and they do a pretty good job of it, is is advocating for the industry at a federal level, a state level, a community sure. level to make sure that these things move forward for the industry. You know, like these people, a Siemens Gamesa or a Vestas or a GE or even, a, you know, large operators and stuff like some of their dues that they pay to the ACP organization are massive. You know, you're talking – there's there's yeah. millions in that pot, right? And that money right. goes to, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, lobbying for the industry. Sure. So yeah. I hope that at this ACP offshore wind power convention it was on the east coast, up towards you know Rhode Island, where there's a there's it easily accessible for a lot of our elected officials to be there. And I believe yes. there was quite a few of them speaking there. I hope they heard this, and they, and and they, in this big forum of offshore energy developers operators supply chain was there speaking loud enough for these for their elected officials to hear guys we need help we want to hit this 30 by 30 we're we're in lockstep with you Biden administration to get right. this done we have the capital we've got the people we're, we're we're moving assets we're trying to build ships we're doing all this stuff but you guys have got to take the damn roadblocks down get to get these hurdles out of the way like let's let's make this happen because you know what it sounds like as well is in any good um, organization, say if it was Joel and Allen Inc., we build our company on processes and this is how we do things. It seems exactly. like the, pro- the processes are rocky and not quite right because they're getting yeah. approvals over here and doing the same stuff over here but not getting it over here and it's kind of individual by the person they're talking to. And um, it's, it's frustrating to watch happen from afar because, of course, we can't personally do anything about it but you know share our voices and hope they get heard as well. But, man – I hope that um, some of the money that the U.S. government is spending on some things gets put into permitting these offshore energy projects and onshore energy projects to get them moving. Yeah, and that's why ACP and NREL and uh, I think there was like 300 uh, people involved in, in, the, in the creation of that uh, offshore best practice document, I'll call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's to try to clear these roadblocks, but that only clears roadblocks if agencies involved accept that. Yeah, and listen As to the it, best yeah. practices, right? And, and take that on. I, I'm not sure they're you know, getting a, a sort of a top-down push from the heads of those administrations, those different agencies, to to implement those. And what we seem to be happening is here in Albany area, Albany, New York area, we're getting sidetracked all the time. And I'm not sure, you know who knows the reason exactly why, but it does seem like it needs a little bit of management involvement. Right. It's like running a fast food, uh, use an analogy. It's like running a fast food chain. If you walk into, say, McDonald's and there's no manager there, it tends to be a little chaotic. Everybody's sort of doing their own thing. 
that's what it kind of feels like right now. Uh, and I'm sure the OEMs and the developers are sort of feeling the same thing. Like consistency, consistency. If I walk into a McDonald's in California or a McDonald's in Massachusetts, I should have the same experience. I should have the same quality of food. I should get the same response. Uh, and when I make an order, it should take a minute to shove it out. Some, whatever those numbers are, that's management, right? That, that tends mm-hmm. to be where management comes in and control, over, controls it over the, the high-level processes that occur. We're not necessarily seeing that in the government agencies that are involved in permitting all these offshore projects to occur. And you, there's a continual uh, repeating chorus of owners and operators, OEMs, saying, hey, the, the, the machinations we're having to go through to get things permitted are really slowing us down and not adding value. I think it's the adding value piece is really the concerning part. Like, we're, we're going to get this permit, but it's taking us a lot longer than it should. Why can't we fix that? And I, I, and I don't know if ACP has been super pushy about that. I, I, they've noted it, and, I'm sure, and I've been in places where they've talked about it. But I, you got to wonder what's ha- kind of wonder what's going on behind the scenes, right? What's happening behind the curtain? Is ACP going up to senators and saying, "We need you to step in"? Hey, Congressperson, we need you to make this phone call to the EPA or whoever it's going to be, the, the Corps of Engineers. You know, what's happening behind the scenes? Because whatever they're doing right now is not seeming to have a huge effect. So is it the fact that because I and maybe you know this or someone listening knows this answer um, and could comment to us or let us know? I just don't personally. But do we have a renewable energy czar or uh, a, you know a renewable energy task force and a lead? And because are we just throwing all these things into a black hole? This or the, the you know well, this, yeah. this, this, into DC and just going like figure it out? But there's no racy model to see who's actually responsible and accountable for it. That's what it feels like, Joel. Uh, yeah. The head of the Department of Energy, which is Jennifer Granholm, is is traveling around the country, and she's very vocal and energetic, and she's talking up these projects. But there's when you start following the chain that she's created and all the things she's talking about, you go, oh, my gosh, a, 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 a Google couldn't manage this. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, there's too much going in too many different yeah. directions. It's, it, you can't. You can't manage it, right? Which is, I think, the problem they're having. And uh, obviously, the Department of Energy can only do so much. There's other agencies that they're working with or competing with, with the, whatever the case is here. Right. Where, you know, what is the head of the Department of Energy going to do? Right? If the EPA yeah. says we're not going to do this thing, they're not going to do it. And that's where those management steps in, right? That's where management steps in. Maybe the white house steps in and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Everybody. I, I just don't, it, it's that the sum total right now. If, if you take the collective comments from all the different OEMs and the, the owner operators, and you start to connect them together. Isn't that the message that you're starting to coalesce around? Well, I think it's, I think it's clear. I don't even think it's a message that's starting to coalesce. I think it's gelled and it's concrete. Every single person is saying, this is not going forward fast enough. It's not going forward in the right way. We need more help. I mean, from OEMs to developers to the supply chain. The, the only people yeah. I know that are, that are eating really well right now are the, the, 
the uh, geophysical and geotechnical surveyors that are out there just driving around in <laughs> <Yeah>. grids. <laughs> They're doing I saw all right. some of that. Did you see that on LinkedIn the other day about oh, yeah. them surveying? That's my, the, that's my old life, man. Yeah, yeah I, I know wow. some people that have retired on that stuff already. <laughs> <laughs> that particular part of the earth has been scanned pretty well over the last year. It's, yeah, it's it's a little shocking. If anybody is if anybody's interested in what we're talking about, you can go on to a website called marinetraffic.com and it tracks the AIS signals of every vessel, every commercial vessel uh, in the world. And yeah. you can go and zoom in on the area where the New York Bite auction is and you can just see all these vessels grid left, right, left, right, up, down, left, right, up, down for the last few years uh, doing, uh, you know, UXO surveys and geotechnical mm. surveys and geophysical surveys, mapping the seabed, all this good jazz. It has to happen before any of these things go forward um, for planning purposes. But those guys have been, they've been eating well. They've had some good Christmases. <laughs> well, you have to know what's down there, right? We've already exactly. seen in some places where they've had trouble uh, driving mm-hmm. monopiles and and uh, putting cables in, right? So there, it's it's well worth the investment. I'm sure it's going to de-risk a lot of a lot of. Well, and the, it's but a big yeah, part of the permitting right. process. It's a big part yeah, of the permitting is. process. Huge. Like you can't go you can't go forward without having a plan of what's out there, what you're going to put in the ground, all these different things. So those mm-hmm. guys have been cruising out there. I mean, I know people that started out there three years ago shooting stuff or surveying stuff before these auctions even came close to happening. Well, do you feel like, let's put this in perspective. Do you feel like the, the developers management wise have been on top of it uh, and, and that they're really pushing as hard as they can without creating too much chaos, but there's just a wall there. There's just a government wall there. Isn't it what it's starting to feel like that, I feel like like Anne Equinor is throwing a lot of people at this problem. I definitely Avon Grid and some Orsted or are, are Dominion are throwing a lot of people at these problems to resolve them. But I mean, the there's, response back seems slow. There's two thousand people at ACP Offshore Wind Power, right? Yeah, right. And if we know if we know anything about conferences, it's a couple of people from each company go, not a hundred. Right. So right. Then you're talking a thousand companies that were represented there, or you know, five hundred at the least. That's a lot of companies for not for only having seven wind turbines in the water. So <laughs> there's there's definitely a lot of people and a lot of effort going forward on this thing. And that 30 by 30 goal, as we talk about all the time, it's just kind of starting to slip. Um, well, and you know, let me throw let me throw this other angle on it. Is 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 it the last couple of months? Have you felt like the administration has been struggling to try to get through November? That the, the, they see the the elections coming up as of right now, the polling is not really going mm-hmm. their way in a lot of states that they're just locked into this election cycle. And we're not going to see anything until November 9th or 10th when all that resolves itself. So we're, we're a couple we of weeks pushing. away from that. Right. Do we is it just, hey, we got to get through this election thing and then we'll get back on it and we could really get going or Will the election and whatever is going to resolve in that, and I, who knows right now? Yeah. Does that just create more chaos so that it doesn't get resolved? What's the feeling there? hundred uh, percent. The elections are taking over everything right now. I'll give you a, a picture of the scene from my house on Sunday. I was watching the football game with my lovely better half, who is Canadian, and she could not believe the amount of political commercials. I mean, and it was just 
this person's horrible and that person got a an F in elementary school and like just like every commercial, every single one of them, one, two, three, four, after one, after another, you'd have a commercial break during a, during a football game and there would be five political commercials. That's all yeah. that the political world is focused on right now is these elections. And it's frustrating because I mean, you know, okay, we're, we're 10 days, 12 days away. That will calm down, but there will be some fallout from it, right? You're going to see, sure. see some power swings and some of those things. Um, and that always, of course, affects the uh, economic environment uh, within the U.S. That's how things work here. So, um, yeah, I think they might be in just kind of a holding pattern. You know, there was this article I saw the other day, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not a CIA spy or anything. I don't know if this is true or not, but that like Biden administration was like pissed off at Saudi Arabia because they were going to yeah. not hold. So the, the fuel prices would increase right before the election. Like, sure. and it literally was like, this is what they said. Like, that's yeah. horrible if that's the case. No, you know, I'm not, I'm not politically pandering or anything, but like, yeah, if that's, that's your focus that's right happening. now. There's an, well, yeah. uh, I, I heard somebody give it a good example of this. Uh, when gas prices rise, that you'll have lines at the gas mm-hmm. at the gas pump to save five cents, right? Mm-hmm. But you you won't have those same lines in other places. So gas prices, because it's so visible, visible in the United States, really drive elections in some cases. And this one may be one of them, where there's not a lot that the government is going to be able to do about it. I, I know they're mm-hmm. trying to at least obviously petroleum reserves and. Talk to Venezuela, it sounds like, and Saudi Arabia at times. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the, the problem with that is it just devotes so much time to things that may not make any difference. And there's other things happening. You got to be able to walk and chew gum is the <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's temporary phrase, right? Right. Even if all that is still happening, the economy churns on and you're missing opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where... I think this is going to be a struggle. Yeah. And, you know, not, not to take anything away from our struggles, but uh, if our European friends and other other countries of the world friends are listening right now and we're talking about, uh, you know, two, $2 or two, two euros a liter fuel and being bent out of shape about it, they're laughing at, or, you know, because right now it's, it's not even close to what their fuel prices are. Uh, so yeah. we're feeling pain, but not like uh, our friends are across the seas. So, yeah. And, you know, and, you know, I hope this little election bit goes pretty fast and we get over it. And I, I saw some disappointing things today where um, ships full of diesel fuel that was headed to Europe, in fact, some of it was docked over there, are now coming to the States because we're running out of diesel fuel in the United States. So we're in this tete-a-tete with, uh, tete with uh, Europe on energy. Mm-hmm. And that's not helpful. That's not cool. No. That's not cool. Yeah. No, I, I'm I mean, not cool with that. No, nope. diesel. F- nope. I'm here in northern Wisconsin, and I was in town yesterday, and regular unleaded was like three sixty a gallon, and diesel fuel was like five forty, I think. Yeah, it's like it, two bucks it's, a gallon. It's more. been as low. I think the the discussion. I was listening. I listened to this trucker, <laughs> trucker uh, overnight show. We, and they were we talking about nothing to get our news. <laughs> no, well, because if you want to hear about energy prices, that's where you go, right? If you want to hear about yeah, yeah. diesel prices. Fuel prices, that's where you go. 
And the, the, the reserves of the United States are really low, historically low right now. And I, I think this is why you're seeing tankers come to the United States with diesel fuel. You know, that doesn't even make any sense. But I think it goes back to just the energy policies we have in place and who's, who's at, the, at the controls managing this. You just don't feel like anybody's there at the moment. And mm-hmm. wind is going to suffer for it, yeah. unfortunately. And that, that's a real shame because the United States – could do a lot of great things at the moment and, and we are but we could be doing so much more lightning is an act of god but lightning damage is not actually is very predictable and very preventable strike tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. it dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory lps so you can stop worrying about lightning damage Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. We have a special guest from Down Under. We have Matthew Stead, uh, co-founder and CEO of Ping at Wind Energy Hamburg. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, So, Matthew, this show, today's Friday. It's the last day of the show. The show's been massive. There have been thousands of people coming by the Ping booth this week. Just give us some of your impressions of all that's happened this week. It's been tremendous. Yeah, I mean, so many people. I think uh, there's a bit of excitement that uh, Wind Energy Hamburg's back on again. Yes, so, that's true. Yeah. Um, quick side note, um, we launched here four years ago, so it's oh, wow. um, a bit of a reunion. Yeah. <laughs> um, a nice one. <laughs> a nice one, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, people have come past, operators, a uh, mixture of you know, OEMs, um, people, industry people. So I guess the, I think, Blades are a hot topic, <laughs> no surprise there. Um, and I think people are becoming aware that there is an ability to have a continuous monitoring program. So yeah. I think, you know, the, the tide is turning. People are realizing digitization, continuous monitoring. It's a thing. It's here. That's right. the way to go. And it's, it's gotten to the point of um, it's beyond the infancy stage. Yeah, sure. Which four years ago, it was at the infancy stage. Yeah, yeah, Everybody was yeah. just trying to figure it out a little bit, but we're here four years later. It seems like the implementation phase is really kicking in. And I know you had a couple of larger orders just inside Scoop, but it's it's, it's exploded. I think, is, is 2023 and the end of 2022 just gonna be growth years? Yeah, I think so. I think um, there's global shortage of, you know, technicians' talent to repair blades. People are realising they need to optimise their repair campaigns. Uh, They can't just keep deferring indefinitely. So, um, yeah, there's an increasing reliance on, you know, condition monitoring to optimise the whole process. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah, we're ready for it. So (laughs) excited (laughs) and getting ready for for what, what, what will be ahead of us. What are some of the, the high points you, or some of the key concerns you heard about this week in terms of monitoring systems? What what problems are the OEMs and the operators bringing in? Yeah. So we got to be able to check this or check that. I think the aftermarket is always you know you know challenged by how much they can afford. Sure. Um, it's you know quite tightly constrained financially, so they, that's always the, the big thing. Um, just. Being aware of what's happening is obviously a part of the whole condition monitoring thing. Um, yeah, and there's more and more continuous monitoring 
you know, systems on the market, and it's good to see you know, they all have their strengths, um, you know, and so it's good to see where they all fit into the puzzle because there's, yeah, um, yeah, there's there's different ways of attacking or you know not attacking, <laughs> uh, yeah, passively uh, monitoring all these different challenges that are occurring. You know, like lightning versus um, root zone damage, it's all it's all different. Right, and the ping module, I can't imagine you envisioned all the things that does now when you were here. <laughs> What, what, yeah, many years ago. 20, you say 2016? Uh, 2018. 2018, okay. Mm. Uh, so four years ago, could you envision all the things that the ping sensor does? No. Uh, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. It's, it's, the yeah. market has driven some of these, these newer ideas. Yeah, yeah. I'm basically getting pulled into different areas. So um, getting pulled into measuring inside the blade to um, monitor um, more significant structural cracks in the root zone. We've got, we've got been pulled into that, um, pulled into um, ice um, build-up monitoring, which we released in Sweden this year, and also being pulled into um, detecting when there's a lightning event as well. Sure, sure. So the, the, the key then to ping is that it's sort of multiversal. You can add on these pieces based on customer demand and customers are demanding to know what's happening inside the blades as well as outside. Correct. It, it seems like that we've heard a lot about this, that this week, uh, structural issues near the hub seem to be almost top of mind because of some of the failures we've seen in the press. What is, what is this new sensor that the new pink sensor do that goes inside the blade? How does it work basically? Yeah, so it uses the same hardware. So oh, for okay. us it's exactly the same hardware without the windshield because <laughs> there's okay. not much wind inside a blade. Hope not. <laughs> Hope not. Well, there shouldn't be. <laughs> right. um, so we've got exactly the same hardware. We've got new algorithms which are tuned towards um, root zone damage, which sounds different from the external damage. Sure. Um, so different algorithms. Um, yeah, so it's just a sort of repackaging. And there's a small challenge about power inside oh, the sure. blade as well. Yeah, you don't have any solar power to work <laughs> no, on. No sun. <laughs> well, hopefully no hopefully, sun. <laughs> hopefully no, no wind and no sun inside the blade. <laughs> right. So you have to come up with a different kind of energy yeah. source. Yeah, right. so we've got an alternative energy source, which... All right. Um, Nuclear? Oh. <laughs> uh, no, that's sun again. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, so there's, there's just a lot going on at, at the Ping uh, headquarters at the moment, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, next Hamburg event is two years from now. What do you see all the offerings in two years. Where's, where's the industry going? Where's the, the monitoring systems going? Cost is obviously top of mind also. We've mm -hmm. seen a lot of that this week. That yeah. Thousands and thousands of dollars for a system. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really cut it. Yeah, especially if you have a thousand turbines, it just doesn't make any sense. Yes. Uh, so the cost is obviously one of those things. But where does, where does the industry go? What, what are our next steps here? Yeah, uh, I think it's really about triangulation of sensors. So what I mean by that is looking at our acoustic signatures, but sure. other other signatures from other other sensors, um, whatever they might be, right. um, maybe br um, vibration, or like uh, we've talked about the lightning detection, right. yeah. um, which is magnetic field um, sensing. Sure. Um, there's other sensors which can go in and around the turbine. So I think it's sort of triangulation of comparing data points, combining them together and getting more insights. So Matthew, what are the uh, key pieces that I've heard in several discussions this week is uh, related to like drone data? There's just a lot of information coming into an operator and they're staff limited. 
also. So there's just not a time to process to review all those images that are coming in. And everybody's trying to um, put some parameters around it, try to simplify the data down, try to get some what I call data funnels yes. in. But that seems really right where Ping is today, is that it's, it's more of a data funnel. And can you explain, like, you're measuring all these different systems, icing, lightning, uh, internal to the blade. You have a number of different sensors, but you're not uh, giving all that information to the, to the end user directly. You're simplifying that. But that happens Correct. on the tower, right? That happens... Um, partly on the tower, or predominantly on the tower, but okay. also at, at cloud level. So uh, the yeah, there, there is too much information, um, and um, you know, users of these systems say, you know, I don't want fifteen logins. Um, right. So I think over the next two years, there'll also be a sort of con consolidation of combining sensors and drone data, right. imagery, inspections, you know, all the all the things they need to know about into a sort of combined source um, and we're, we're part of that yeah. Um, uh, yeah it's probably not our vision to drive that transition though no but I think in general you're, you're almost there or you may be there directly. yeah we are we have an ability to exchange data already so right. we've got a, a, a behind the scenes a sort of um, API data transfer system so that's already happening Wow so the the, the marketplace is just wide open at, at this point in terms of capability. Yeah, and I mean, a number of um, firms uh, have made great progress on trying to amalgamate data sources. So, that, you know, a number of the ones that are here. Um, and, you know, that's why we're partnering up with you know, sort of like-minded organisations where we can help them to enhance the output of their, their results. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're fitting into the ecosystem of monitoring blades. Yes. So this week has been very busy. It sounds like you had a, a number of uh, large orders, I'll call it. Uh, I don't want to get too descriptive there. Uh, if someone is interested in the ping unit, they better get on it. They, they better start reaching out to you pretty soon yeah. because you're, yeah. you're, the manufacturing-wise, there's, there's just a limited quantity at the moment and it's going to be in high demand. What should people do who are interested in, in learning about ping or maybe acquiring 100 ping units? Yep. How do they get on your radar screen and, and get that process started? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, absolutely right there for the lightning detection and also the in-blade version. We have a bit of a forward order, um, order book there or orders um, indicated. Um, so really it's back to the old website, <laughs> um, pingmonitor.co or LinkedIn or, yeah, yeah, LinkedIn, sure. or um, yeah, find me. Yeah, and also YouTube. Yeah, uh, YouTube, of course. YouTube channel, yeah. Yeah, perfect. So there's there's uh, just, uh, this is the end of, this is Friday, so this is the end of the day on Friday. They just made an announcement to, they're kicking everybody out of the hall, so we're going to have to go here in a minute. Yep. Uh, but in terms of shows, this has been oh, this fabulous. this is huge, yeah. And, yeah, I think there was a lot of excitement because this is the first big, 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 big event. So, yeah, it was yeah. great. It, it, it was, we were in San Antonio together for the American Clean Power, which was a big show. But this is, I don't this know. is Texas scale <laughs> compared to what we saw in Texas. Yeah, a factor of five bigger? I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, at least a factor of five. Maybe we're talking about maybe a factor of eight bigger. Yeah. Just the number of people, number of, of booths, number of new concepts. The, the, the Danish Pavilion had about over 100 exhibitors in wow. just their pavilion alone. So you can well imagine uh, there are a ton of new ideas and a ton of uh, and, and a, a number of new concepts being presented. Uh, you got to wonder what's going to happen with the industry in this sense of 
if I was an operator, I'd be overwhelmed right now. Yeah. Yeah, I it's guess just a lot going on. Evaluation of how do you value ideas? It? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's one of Ping's benefits is that you've been through those trials. You're beyond the trial phase. This yeah. this thing works. We know it works. It gives you great data. Does that really help stabilize a lot of customer concerns? Uh, absolutely. You know, we've got some great case studies where we've done larger scale deployments and um, got great correlation um, with with data. Um, yeah, and we also have a continuous sort of research and development program sure. to to improve that. But yeah, yeah, we don't talk about trials and POCs. Yeah, right. You're you're in production. Yeah, yeah, we're in production. <laughs> you're so, in massive yeah, production our, at the our, moment. Our last order was a 500, uh, a minimum order size of 500. So wow. that's where we're heading towards. Well, it's about time. You know, I think the industry needed to do it, but we were in COVID time, so things really slowed down. And now coming out, it's pedal to the metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monitoring systems, yep. and, and that's it. finally good to see. So, Matthew, thanks for 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 being with us this week. Uh, congratulations on all the exciting news and and the news that's about to come. And uh, yeah, we'll come back on on uh, uptime anytime you'd like. Big thanks to Matthew Stead of Ping. That was a great interview, and, and I'm glad to see Matthew in Hamburg. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast.